Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening. Thank you for joining us here on ADH TV. Now, you can watch us, I tell you this every night, don't I, on your television by downloading the ADH TV app on the App Store on Apple TV, or so they're all on the screen, or the Google Play Store, depending on what brand of TV you have. Or you can watch us on your phone or iPad, go to the App Store and just search ADH TV. It's free to watch. Well, tonight on the program, the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, will join me. You've heard me before when it comes to Peter Dutton. This man comes into the job with more parliamentary and ministerial experience than any of his predecessors. Not only that, but he's also a proven fighter for centre-right causes and for his electorate of Dixon. That's Dixon in Queensland. Dixon is no blue-ribbon Liberal seat. It used to be safe Labor. It's in Brisbane's outer northern suburbs, and despite all the speculation, come each election, that D Dutton may lose it, he always holds the seat. I told you last night the bravest move to date by Peter Dutton since taking on the role as Liberal Party leader is the removal of Alex Hawke from the front bench. Hawke is a cancer on the Liberal Party, a useless minister in the previous government, but only appointed to the ministry to begin with because he was a lackey of Scott Morrison's. The new coalition front bench will not feature Hawke. That is a step in the right direction. The opposition made, leader made clear that the rubbish that went on in the New South Wales division of the Liberal Party in regard to pre-selections cannot happen again. As the very respected Nick Minchin said, all the candidates for must-win seats in New South Wales were pre-selected about a year too late. Peter Dutt must go a step further. He must order and direct to the best of his ability and with the necessary assistance, the clean-out of the party's executive. We need new people with fresh ideas. Call Tony Abbott and encourage him to stand for the New South Wales Liberal Party presidency so he can drain the swamp and restore confidence in the party and energise the membership. You cannot win elections without volunteers. The same happened in Queensland to the LNP and Peter Dutton was instrumental in cleaning that up. Peter Dutton, as I've said many times, is the hope of the side. We'll also go to Washington, D.C. to speak to our U.S. correspondent, Peggy Grandy. There's plenty happening over there, I can tell you. And remember, you can have your say. Email me, alanjones at adh.tv. All right. Well, now, the new government, the Albanese government, seems to want to bury us in talk about defining challenges and crises, mentioning inflation and more than a trillion dollars of debt, quote, chock full of rorts and waste. So says Jim Chalmers. I'm sure he's right. Today, the Reserve Bank has raised interest rates for only the second time in more than a decade, allegedly to counter rising inflation. Obviously, interest rates must go up. That was inevitable. But I don't think raising interest rates will do a lot to solve the current inflation problem. The Albanese government must avoid creating the impression that things are worse than they are. For example, on interest rates, let's be honest, the money is still cheap. And it's just that too many people were seduced into believing that money borrowed at next to zero interest rates could go on forever. It is one thing to detail, to detail the litany of inherited woes, but as I've said previously, we don't want to be stirring up unnecessary anxiety and hysteria 
about the accumulation of these issues. After all, the unemployment rate is still at 3.9%, the lowest in 50 years, but employers can't find workers, which brings me to wages. On the one hand, it is true that real wages are falling at their fastest rate since the introduction of the GST. Real wages dropped 2.7% in the last year, 2.7%. That represents an erosion in living standards and the fall in real pay was the second worst in the history of the wage price index. Tony Burke, the new Minister for Employment and Workplace Relations, has confirmed that the new government has put a fresh submission to the Fair Work Commission's annual minimum wage review, arguing, and I quote, high and rising inflation and weak wages growth are reducing real wages across the economy and creating cost of living pressures for low paid workers, unquote. Well, that no doubt is true. So if the Commission acts on the government's suggestion, it will see a minimum wage rise of $1 an hour or roughly $40 a week. Employers have a week to lodge any objections to the submission and a fair work decision is due in time for the start of the financial year, July 1. The new government says, most laudable in an ideal world, quote, we don't want anyone to go backwards, unquote. And quote, this is what it looks like when you have a government that is willing to fight for better wages, unquote. Now, look, I'm sorry. It's a nonsense to say that any government, and the New South Wales government is going through this right now, doesn't want better wages. Indeed, the New South Wales government is going to lift its public sector wages cap for the first time since it was introduced in 2011. But unions are talking about industrial action because lifting the 2.5% cap on public sector pay to 3% represents a cut in real wages. The Paraday government have created a further problem. The one-off $3,000 payment to permanent health workers for their work during the pandemic is commendable. But unions are saying, what about other frontline workers during the pandemic? Why pit some workers against others? After all, the New South Wales police, often against their will, had to enforce absurd health orders. It was tough doing things they didn't agree with. They won't get the payment. The New South Wales unions will argue that in the 2021 financial year, public sector wages were capped at 2.8% when inflation was 38 In 2022-23, the cap will be 3%, but inflation is likely to be well over 5%, so real wages are not growing. The worker is going backwards. We'll throw into the mix this Reserve Bank Governor, Philip Lowe, and I don't know how many times he's got things wrong, especially on interest rates, but he's often expressed concern about public sector pay caps that entrench his view that low wage growth, now if I read his comments correctly, he seems to be saying that governments have an obligation to lift the wage cap for public sector workers, which would force the private sector to follow. Look out, the red lights are flashing. As I've said in an ideal world, talking about not wanting anyone to go backwards is terrific. But in the past, Labor governments have fallen, been booted out of office as a result of their own initiatives. Remember Whitlam slashing tariffs by 25%. Remember Rudd and Gillard and boats and refugees and a carbon tax. The point is Labor governments historically identify themselves with a policy position which eventually destroys them. Well, could it be wages policy? 
You're not going to be able to argue for a 5.1% increase to the lowly paid and pretend, as the new government would want, that you can limit it. This is danger territory for the Albanese government. Good luck, because the economy won't be able to cope. And if, as we're now being told, the economy is on the edge, spare us what might occur if there's a wage explosion. Look out, Prime Minister. In other times, it might have been okay. But today, your wages policy is threatening to throw fuel on an emerging economic fire. The Prime Minister's first message should be a simple one. Two points. One, business, government and employers have to be fair. But the second point is even simpler. We're all going to have to tighten our belts. It's not the time to be whinging about how badly off we are. Well, Peter Dutton, the newly minted leader of the opposition, will join me in a moment. It may not please his detractors, but his elevation to the leadership has certainly been welcomed by large blocks within the world of fair dinkum liberals. I said last week, and I don't care if this embarrasses him, there is no leader in recent times who's come to the position of leadership of either political party and take them all, Albanese, Morrison, Shorten, Turnbull, Gillard, even Tony Abbott, yes, including John Howard and Bob Hawke, no person has come to a position of party leadership with greater experience and more credentials across an enormous government portfolio experience than Peter Dutton. He's been in the parliament for 21 years. He's won the seat of Dixon, a notionally Labor seat, eight elections in a row. He's been the assistant treasurer to Peter Costello. He's held ministries in the Howard, Abbott, Turnbull and Morrison cabinets. He served on the National Security Committee. And as he said on the day of his elevation to the leadership, and I quote him, I've served as our country's health minister, as our sports minister, I've been a defence minister, home affairs minister, I've been on the expenditure review committee, I've been part of the National Security Committee and I've been part of the leadership of the party. I repeat, no one in Australia's recent political history has come to a leadership position better credential. And Peter Dutton joins me. Peter, thank you for your time. Congratulations. You've put a spring in the step of many devoted Liberals. But if I might just start, who is Peter Dutton? Because I note you say your parents weren't well off and you started part-time work at a butcher shop and you saved and bought a house at 19 and you've got significant business interests. I guess you'd be hoping government would provide those opportunities for everyone. Well, Alan, uh, firstly, thanks for having me back on the show. It's uh, great to be with you and um, thank you for your kind remarks earlier. I, I think this role gives me the opportunity to show uh, the other side of who I am. Uh, I'll never change because I believe very strongly in the values that were instilled in me in my upbringing, the value for money, the value of hard work. Uh, my grandmother uh, came off the land as, dairy far as a dairy farmer. My grandfather died uh, when I was only four, four years of age. Uh, and, you know, we, we were brought up with, uh, with very strong values. So I'm not going to deviate from that. And I've had tough jobs in Parliament. As you say, when you're out there talking about national security matters and defence matters, etc., uh, you have to be a serious contributor to those debates. But I hope in this job I can talk more about the other issues that I think are important to families, to businesses. We are coming into an incredibly difficult time. Labor doesn't know how to handle money. It is going to be tougher under Labor over the next few years. And I think we can put together the policies and provide the strong leadership that's required to help our country get through the next three years and then to have a positive agenda when we win the election in 2025. Well, just come back again to where you and who you are. Uh, the Premier of Western Australia, Mark McGowan, said you're an extremist 
who isn't very smart. Respond to that. Well, I mean, nobody's as smart as Mark McGowan. That's uh, <laughs> the first point to make. Uh, and, but I, I, think, I think I've done OK. Uh, I've, uh, you know, as I say, served as the Defence Minister. Uh, I'm the 15th person to lead the Liberal Party, uh, the third in the Liberal Party's history, to take up the position without being challenged. Uh, so I believe I've got the respect of my colleagues and I think you're already seeing us bring the team together and to do that in an effective way, to take the fight up to the government, to support the government where they've got good policy, but to call them out and to vehemently fight for what we believe in, where we think they've got it wrong. And I think that has come from my upbringing. Uh, I, as I said, uh, grew up in a working class suburb. Uh, Dad started as a bricklayer. Uh, Mum as a daycare mother taking in kids before and after school to help put us through uh, a private school, but not a top tier school, because they understood the value of education. Uh, we were taught very early on uh, to respect people older than ourselves, uh, to have good manners, um, you know, the basics. And uh, I, I think I was a very shy child, uh, I've got to say, I probably still am in, in some ways, but. Uh, working particularly in retail. I mean, I started mowing lawns uh, for my grandmother's friends and, uh, you know, tried to get pocket money together because, uh, you know, we, we weren't um, an affluent family. And uh, I've been able to work hard. I've got an amazing wife, uh, beautiful kids, and I uh, couldn't do this job without the support of them. And I think keeping your feet on the ground, I've still got the same group of mates from school and, uh, you know, we still play golf together or have a barbecue or go down and uh, watch a bit of footy at the pub and have a steak and, and a couple of beers. So, I, I, you know, I think I'm pretty regular uh, and I, I, I want to, you know, have a conversation with issues that I think are important to people because I remember growing up in a household where, as a builder, Dad could quote 10 jobs uh, and get nothing uh, or he could quote 10 jobs the next month and, uh, you know, and, and do really well. And at the end of the month, we used to sit down and, write out the checks, mum or dad would sign them, I'd write the envelope out, put the stamp on, you know, that sort of basic thing, that, that belief in small business. And that served me well through my life and I hope that I can bring that experience into this right. position Good on as you. Well. well. I'm glad we've been able to talk about these things. Later on, we'll talk about policy and stuff, but people have got to get to know you. Now, your critics, for example, coming back to what you said before, say you terrify them, you always look unsmiling and threatening. But as I think you said, you've had a few tough jobs as a minister, which didn't give you much to smile about. I mean, cancelling the visas of just over 6,000 criminals, people who've committed sexual offences against women and children, committed murder, serious criminal acts, you deported them. Pretty hard to break into a smile over all that, isn't it? Well, of course, of course it is. I mean, you'd be accused of uh, being insensitive and, and so the left would attack you for, for that. Um, and they're always going to attack me for something because I, I think the... You know, the people who matter in public life, Alan, are those that are willing to stand up for their beliefs, Definitely. what our supporters believe in mm. and what we believe is in our country's best interests. Mm. You know, you can sit on the fence and you can be sixes and sevens on every issue, uh, but I believe that you've got to, on all of the evidence available to you, with all of the skill and the experience that you bring to the decision-making process, make a decision, stick by it and argue for it and have the policies that will help people and help Good families idea. and small businesses. Well, talking about and that... And that's, uh, that, that's... 
That, yeah. That's going to create enemies, right? And yeah. people won't like you because that's uh, you're standing for, because for, you're for something them. that they don't agree with. Yeah. That, that's that's part of leadership. You, you threaten them. They're right. Just come back to this criticism you received when you walked out on the apology to the stolen generation. I mean, I thought you were most impressive here. You've acknowledged that that was a mistake, but you had a splendidly coherent explanation. I mean, just share that with us about being a policeman. You worked in Townsville. You went to all these domestic violence incidents involving Indigenous communities. And you said you thought the apology should be given when those problems are resolved, and they aren't. Well, uh, Alan, I think we're all a product of our, uh, you know, of our upbringing, of our experiences in life. And I I mean, I always wanted to be a policeman. Uh, My mum desperately wanted me to go to university uh, because nobody uh, in our family had been to university before. Uh, I, as every, you know, every teenage uh, boy should do, I took the advice of my mum, uh, went to university, started a business degree. I finished it part-time later on, but uh, I ended up joining the police academy when I was 19. So I was young and I, you know, I saw a lot. I mean, I, I grew up uh, in a loving family and uh, I was, you know, I was exposed pretty quickly to the good and the bad of society. And Townsville was my first posting. Uh, and I'd worked uh, around the state of Queensland otherwise, but it did expose me to uh, some terrible circumstances. I remember bringing uh, the body back of an Indigenous woman from Palm Island who had uh, been involved in a fight in a domestic uh, uh, violence situation, uh, a terrible, terrible scenario. Uh, you know, I went to her post-mortem and I had been to countless uh, assaults uh, on kids, on women, uh, in Indigenous communities, in white households, uh, you know, across the board. That was the that was the job of a frontline police officer. And so, yes, I mean, all of those experiences stuck with me. And it's why I've been so passionate about the protection of women and children my entire adult life, my entire life of public service as a police officer now for two decades in this role, uh, to making sure that kids can enjoy the innocence yeah. of their, you know, their, their childhood. And so, yes, that, that, that shaped me. And I believe that we should... Uh, we, the time to make an apology is when you've when you've righted those wrongs, and I think all of those domestic violence incidents are still taking place tonight. They are, and we we should, uh, you know, yes, address the symbolism. I underestimated the the value of the symbolism for some people, um, but I still want the practical outcomes, and yes. uh, I want kids to enjoy well, their, see, their childhood. See, I, I thought you spoke for millions of Australians when you said, and I quote you, going to a meeting here in Canberra and giving 10 acknowledgements to country, that's fine, and I don't say that in a disparaging way. You said, but I want to know how it is we're going to support those kids. I want to know how it is we're going to get better health outcomes, lower mortality rates, more kids through university, just finishing primary school and secondary school to start with. I mean, that's the issue. I suppose your critics would then say, well, hang on, you and the coalition were there for nine years. Why do these problems still persist? It's, and it's a, it's a good question. And I think uh, back over my last two decades, I haven't been in a conversation around the expenditure review committee or around a cabinet table or around the leadership group where anybody has ever suggested that uh, we should pull back or do less in these communities. And, uh, and, and to be honest, um, I think there's a mountain of goodwill uh, within the Rudd and Gillard governments as well to do more in this space. I'm sure the Albanese government's got uh, goodwill to, you know, to do good things in Indigenous communities. But the, the fact is that we, we haven't succeeded. And so all of us share the blame for that, uh, including Indigenous leaders, not just the members of parliament and the leaders of the last few decades, but we're, we're further behind on some of these indicators. And 
when you talk about a very high occurrence of sexually transmitted diseases within children, within Indigenous communities, or these stories of kids having to lock themselves in shipping containers to make it through the hours of darkness without being sexually assaulted. I mean, that is an appalling indictment. And uh, so we should do more. And people who say, well, uh, you know, we, we, we've got to do the symbolism and that's, you know, through the acknowledgement to country in Canberra uh, at government departments, uh, that that's going to resolve these issues for these kids in these communities. Well, well it hasn't. Uh, and so, yes, the symbolism is important, but I want to see the practical outcomes and I want to support the government in policies uh, that will make a difference in these kids' lives so that they can enjoy the upbringing that most of us have in capital cities and in regional towns around, around Look, the country. We'll always run out of time. So just before I go to ask you this, I mean, there are now 10 Indigenous members of the federal parliament. Does anyone know, do you know what is meant by having a voice, an Indigenous voice in the constitution? I don't know what that means. I've asked Jacinda Price. She doesn't know what it means. Uh, Tony Abbott said, I'm not sure what it means. Do you know what that means? And if you've got 10 elected Indigenous people into the parliament, isn't that an Indigenous voice? Well, Alan, I, I think this is why the government needs to explain what it is they're proposing. Uh, I think some Australians, not all Australians, to be honest, will have heard of this proposal of the voice. Mm. And very few Australians, uh, particularly Australians outside of Canberra, could tell you what it is that the government's Absolutely. proposing. And the reason for that is that I don't think the government yet knows the detail themselves. I haven't seen the legal advice about what implications it would have for legislation that was passed through the parliament in relation to health or education or law and order issues. I haven't uh, seen any advice uh, on what it is that the government's proposing in terms of where these people would come from and how they would be elected. Uh, but the government's working through all of that, and I respect that. But that they need to explain it not just to the opposition but to the Australian That's people right. so that we can form a judgment Absolutely. on whether there's support or something there we can support or Absolutely. some element uh, or let, let's I've just been open-minded in saying well let, let's see what they're proposing, but at the moment, there's no detail. No, absolutely. Listen, we've got to talk off, and there are many issues we can canvas, but look, congratulations, you're a breath of fresh air. And as I said, the base of the Liberal Party is very excited about where you might take them. So thank you for your time tonight. Hope we can talk again soon. Thank you, mate. Take care. Thank there you. There he is. That's Peter Dutton, the new leader of the opposition. Well, I think we'd all agree that amidst everything else that's going on in the world, we are grateful for the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, the happiness and sense of pride in the achievements of a remarkable woman, banished, even if only temporarily, the unhappiness of war and inflation, energy and interest rate crises. But great things with a difference were taking place in other parts of the world. Perhaps the finest Australian athlete that you've never heard of is Australia's number one female golfer, the 26-year-old West Australian Min Ji Lee born of Korean parents who moved to WA more than two decades ago. Minji Lee has now won the biggest prize in the history of women's golf, the US Open and $2.5 million. But across the channel, not far from the Queen's Jubilee, an extraordinary Spanish 36-year-old was cementing his own place in history. Rafael Nadal captured his 14th French Open a record that will never be approached, let alone exceeded. And this was after an epic quarterfinal against Novak Djokovic, offering to the tennis world a level of tennis that is rarely seen. Then came the tragic semi-final against the elegant German Alexander Zverev. Now, I suspect most people didn't see it. After all, the first set, plus the next 12 games in the second set, 
lasted more than three hours. Yet again, the tennis was of the highest calibre. The tall and powerful German went every inch of the way with Rafa, such that he had five set points in the first set, four of them consecutive, up 6-2 in the tiebreak. Nadal, on the stretch, hit two forehand winners that must go down as two of the greatest shots anyone has ever played. One with Rafa miles outside the court, Zverev at the net, and Rafa manages a cross-court passing shot with an impossible angle. The other, when Zverev approached the net with a splendid, powerful and deep forehand into Rafa's left-handed forehand, and somehow, at the bullet-like speed that only he can manifest, Nadal squeezed a passing shot up the line and the set was his. Tragically, at six all in the second, as the German chased a wide forehand, Zverev somehow got his feet tangled up and his right angle sickeningly, sickeningly twisted underneath him and he was gone, crying and screaming in pain. He left the court in a wheelchair, returned on crutches to thank the referee and the crowd and to congratulate Rafa. Who knows when he'll be back. And then the final against a very brave and generous Norwegian, the first ever in a Grand Slam final, though his father was a world-ranked player and now his coach, but Kasparud, the world number eight, was never in it. 6-3, 6-love. To which the Norwegian, who has trained at Rafa's Academy in Spain, responded, you are a true champion. This is the first time I've faced you, so now I know what it's like to be the victim. <laughs> There'll be many others, unquote. Well, it was Rafa's 30th Grand Slam final. He's now won 22. It should be pointed out that the greats like Sampras, McEnroe, Connors, Becker and Edberg could never manage the red clay of Roland Garros. They never won a French title. Even the great Roger Federer could win only once in Paris. Nadal has won 14 times in Paris, two Australian Opens, two Wimbledons and four US Opens. The invincible Australian Rodney Laver won on every surface and like Rafa, won multiple titles on each, but only two French championships, Rafa 14. There is sadly a downside to all of this. Rafa played with injections in his foot. He suffers from Muller-Weiss syndrome, which is a rare degenerative condition that causes him chronic pain and forced him to miss a large chunk of action last year. He played with an injection on the nerve. So as he said, the foot was asleep. The affliction causes a deformity in one of the bones at the centre of the foot. Rafa was 36 last Friday. But in the aftermatch interview, he said, concerning the condition he faces, I can't and I don't want to keep going. I'm going to keep working to try to find a solution, unquote. He needed pain-killing injections in his left foot before every match in Paris, and he'll undergo treatment again when he, turns this, when he returns this week to Spain. Hopefully this is not the last of him, but when he goes, Rafael Nadal, he will leave a legacy of athletic greatness and incomparable modesty. Few, if any, have reached Rafa's level in either. Well, let's bring in, as we do every Tuesday, the very attractive voice from America, the splendidly informed former executive assistant to the former American president, Ronald Reagan. Peggy Grundy certainly knows her stuff. Peggy, thank you for your time. Look, surprise, without notice, I think our viewers would like to know because you never bang on about your own drum. But am I right in saying that this morning your time, you're at the White House unveiling a new Nancy Reagan stamp 
in the company of the president's wife. Just tell us briefly what that was about. Well, you're right, Alan. Your sources are spot on. I was at the White House this morning for an unveiling of the Nancy Reagan stamp, one of only six first ladies who have been issued a stamp in their honor. And it was a lovely bipartisan celebration with Dr. Jill Biden doing the unveiling. And in the East Room of the White House with the portrait of George Washington right there, there's nothing more special than being there on a day like this. And to gather with good longtime Reagan friends made it extra special. Yeah, amazing, yes. I can recall the time we met with the then President Carter in the Oval Office. That was another story. He was a speed reader, Jimmy Carter, and he learned everyone's name off by heart. And the Australian Prime Minister was Malcolm Fraser, but Malcolm's name was John Malcolm Fraser. So when we arrived in the Oval Office to meet President Carter, he referred to Malcolm Fraser as John, but he knew all our names and everything because <laughs> he'd sort of learnt all this stuff off. Now to the serious stuff, just returning to a subject we talked about a couple of weeks ago, I see that more than two thirds of Americans want to uphold Roe versus Wade and most favour women having access to legal abortion for any reason, according to a Wall Street Journal poll. Does that take the heat out of the debate? Well, um, always thank you for having me on, Alan. And, you know, I think this is going to be a non-issue in November. Yeah. This was meant to be something that um, was always to be decided by the states. Even Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a very liberal justice, said that Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided in 1973. And the case that's before the Supreme Court right now is not banning abortions. It's just saying that the rightful owner of that decision is the state. Our Constitution, any powers that are not expressly given to the federal government belong to the state. And this was never a power granted to them. Right. This case was wrongly decided and many on the left agree. Just for our viewers, the 1973 decision by the Supreme Court established the constitutional right to an abortion. 68% of the respondents in this poll said they would not like to see the court completely overturn Roe. Peggy, the figures are interesting, aren't they, on a very delicate matter, because they're saying, this poll said, after 15 weeks of pregnancy, 34% of respondents were in support, 43% in opposition. After six weeks of pregnancy, 30% were in favour, 49% opposed. But 57% of respondents said a woman should be able to obtain a legal abortion if she wanted it for any reason, which is the highest share since the University of Chicago poll began asking the question every few years ago, way back to 1977. So I think the point to sum this up is you're saying this won't be an issue as you see it in the November midterm election. Well, I think that it's not the access to abortions that people are concerned about. It's the timing of it. And the left has continued to push this conversation further and further. Most of the American people are not in favor of abortion during a third term or third trimester of pregnancy. And some on the radical left have even suggested that abortion should be allowed after the baby is born. To me, that's called infanticide. And so mm -hmm. it's not a matter of access to abortion. It's a matter of the timing. And I think there's great consensus on the first trimester having it be what Bill Clinton called safe, legal, and rare. And Bill Clinton was a Democrat, but I think a lot of the American people center on that, make mm -hmm. it safe, legal, 
and rare. In that poll, uh, they were asked who should be responsible for abortion law. 44% said the Supreme Court, 20% said state legislatures and governors, 17% said the US Congress and 15% said states' courts. Uh, to complete the picture, Peggy, in that poll, 86% of respondents supported abortion access if the mother's health was at serious risk, 84% if the pregnancy was the result of rape or incest, and 76% if there was a strong chance of a serious birth defect. I noted, though, it's strange, don't you think, that 59% said abortion should be possible if the family had a low income and couldn't afford more children. Where's this, very quickly, where's this going to end up? Well, it's going to wind up, I think, rightly decided by the court. I do think Roe v. Wade will be overturned. I think that decision will go back to the state. And that's the rightful place, because if people don't like the decision their state is making, they have the right to elect or unelect uh, the people of their choosing who will represent what they feel is important. This does not belong at the federal level. It belongs at the state level. And I think that's where it's going to wind up. OK. To the issue that's dominating the world, really, interest rates, I see the vice chairman of your Federal Reserve says she supports plans to raise interest rates by half a percentage point at a meeting this month. We're going to have that today. And again in July, she said, it's hard to see the case for a pause and, quote, we still have a lot of work to do to get inflation down to our 2% target. Peggy, how are the American people reacting to this, given that a lot of the factors infect affecting inflation are international factors rather than domestic ones? Yeah. Well, the American people are scared and they're furious. And you've got somebody like Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen coming out this past week saying that she made a mistake, that she didn't estimate that the inflation would be so consequential. And she's blaming it on outside sources. Government spending is responsible for this inflation crisis. And the American people are really frustrated by it because this administration seems to be admiring the problem, complaining about it, passing off blame and not taking action on it. The American people need and deserve action right away. This is a serious issue that's affecting every American family. Yeah, you're right. And see, Peggy, you're right about that Federal Reserve. We've got the same problem here. I mean, your Federal Reserve and our Federal Reserve, the Reserve Bank here, left the cash rate in your country between 0.75 and 1%. Now, it's terribly cheap money, but it led to a lot of borrowers getting into trouble because it could never last. But your Federal Reserve, our Reserve Bank, didn't say that. Here in Australia, they said, oh, no interest rate increases till 2023. I mean, these people have grossly misled the public, haven't they? Well, the American people may not know the ins and outs of all the policies, but what they do know is that these people do not know what they're doing. And everything they do seems to make things worse. And maybe they don't understand the policies, but they understand the effect of those policies. And they're seeing the pain at the pump, at the gas station, in the grocery store. Everywhere they go, they feel like they're, they're government is against them, not helping them. And, you know, during President Carter, maybe inflation, people worried about the price of bread. I think under Biden, they may be worried that they won't be able to find bread at all at any price. Yes. I mean, the vice chairman of your Federal Reserve said she was heartened. I mean, I suppose she's on about 500000 a year, heartened that borrowing costs had increased in ways that be could begin to cool the economy. I mean, it mightn't hearten too many borrowers. 
Well, it just shows that this administration is completely disconnected from the average American who is really struggling to put baby formula in their child's mouth, to put food on the table and gas in their tanks. And here they're bragging about maybe rising inflation is a good thing because it'll cool the market. They're completely disconnected from the real American people. Absolutely. And the most disconnected is the president of the United States who said, have a watch this. He said, I know you've got to be frustrated. I know I can taste it. Listen to this. I know you got to be frustrated. I know. I can taste it. Peggy, oh, Peggy, who let this spoke loose to write an opinion piece for the New York Times when he said, quote, as much as I disagree with Putin and find his actions an outrage, the United States will not try to bring about his ouster in Moscow. So long as the United States or our allies are not attacked, we will not be directly engaged in this conflict, either by sending American troops to fight in Ukraine or by attacking Russian forces. I mean, what kind of leg up is that giving to Putin? Well, isn't this the same man who just recently said, this man's got to go about Putin? So which is it? They, people don't believe a word Joe Biden says, either from the podium or in print. It doesn't matter. He says something, his own White House retracts it. He says something, he changes his mind. So he's making the world a very dangerous place. Very. His allies, his own people don't trust him and our enemies don't fear us. And that's put the world in a very dangerous place. Absolutely. When you've got the leader of the free world telling Vladimir Putin that he's safe, no one's trying to replace him and good luck, Ukraine. We won't be directly engaged unless we are attacked. Peggy, one other thing. Isn't it 116 days since his last press interview? No press conference last week, no interview with a broadcaster or a newspaper. And Emma Vaughan, a spokesperson for the Republican National Committee, said Biden's refusal to address the American people about the many crises they're facing under his failed administration is inexcusable. I mean, it's, he's been 18 months in office, but Peggy, I suppose no point talking to the media when he's got nothing to say that's coherent. That is true. And maybe this is the one thing that his staff has done right, because hiding him from the media is probably the smartest thing that they can do, because every time he gets in front of the media, his ratings drop. He says something that needs to be backtracked. And so from their perspective, this is probably the least worst choice to make. Um, but we know that Joe Biden, he talks to himself, he double speaks, he shakes hands with nobody who's there, he wanders around aimlessly. This is a man who's not in control of his words, his faculties, certainly is in control of this nation and is not providing leadership to the world that we need and deserve. Absolutely. And of course, his last interview was way back in February. Just to wrap this up, uh, you and I talked a couple of months ago about the trial of this Michael Sussman. Now, this is how significant and on the pulse uh, Peggy Grandy is the trial of Sussman, and whether he lied to the FBI while sharing damaging allegations about Donald Trump at a key moment in the 2016 presidential election. The assertions were that the Hillary Clinton campaign and the press colluded in ultimately harmful ways, leading to the public airing of unsubstantiated uh, allegations shortly before election day. Now, Sussman is a cybersecurity lawyer Hillary Clinton's campaign lawyer, and the jury were to determine whether the Clinton campaign and Sussman lied to the FBI. Now, you told us when we discussed this some months ago that you didn't have a lot of faith in the justice system. Sussman, not guilty. 
Right. Well, Sussman is guilty, we know, even though the court did not find him such. This trial came down to one question. Did Sussman lie to the FBI? We know resoundingly, yes, he did. There's a text message from his phone to the FBI agent that said he was coming on behalf of himself and not on behalf of a client. And then there's paperwork showing that he turned around and billed that meeting to his client, which was Hillary Clinton. And so it, it's in black and white. It's as evident as can be. But it really goes to show that perhaps Perhaps there are two tiers of justice, and one is for the connected and the wealthy, and one is for the rest of us. And I fear increasingly, especially in places like Washington, D.C., maybe there's two tiers of justice, one for those who are siding with the Democratic Party and those who aren't. That leaves us all in a very dangerous place if even the scales of justice are tipped against half of the American population. Outstanding. Great stuff, Peggy. Great to talk to you, and he'll talk to you next week again. Fabulous, isn't it? There she is. Doesn't she know her stuff? Peggy Grandy, formerly the executive assistant to President Ronald Reagan. Look, I'm not Nostradamus, but I will tell you something now. This net zero emissions nonsense will inevitably be revealed as the hoax that it is. Remember Barack Obama's former chief scientist has written a book on this, Unsettled, What Climate Science Tells Us, What It Doesn't and Why It Matters, in which he says quote, and there's the significant professor in this field of science, quote, leaders talk about existential threat, climate emergency, disaster, crisis. But in fact, when you actually read the literature, there is no support for that kind of hysteria. The science is insufficient to make useful projections about how the climate will change in coming decades, much, much less what effect human beings will have on it. That's Professor Stephen Coonan a self-declared Democrat. And he said he's increasingly dismayed by climate alarmism, the chief scientist to Barack Obama. But it's not only Professor Coonan. Dr John R. Christie is a climatologist from Alabama. Quote, I've often heard that there's a consensus of thousands of scientists on the global warming issue and that human beings are causing catastrophic change to the climate system. Well, I am one scientist and there are many who thinks that is not true. Dr. Charles Wax is the former president of the American Association of State Climatologists, who has argued, quote, first off, there isn't a consensus among scientists. Don't let anybody tell you there is, unquote. Well, as a measure of the fear that exists amongst its proponents, it seems the only response by the climate change apologists to a contrary view is to cancel people or even punish them. Certainly run away from debate. I can tell you something, none will come on this program because they simply can't answer the questions. As proof of the vindictive and punitive nature of those who won't tolerate any disagreement with the catechism of the new climate change religion, witness the senior HSBC banker, Stuart Kirk. Barely three weeks ago, Kirk told the world that climate change, though real, is not something financial markets need to worry about. One of his presentation slides read, and I quote, unsubstantiated, shrill, apocalyptic warnings are always wrong. Well, as Rupert Darwall reports, the reaction was instantaneous. Christiana Figueres, the former head of the United Nations Climate Secretariat, denounced the banker's remarks as abhorrently outrageous. Now, this Figueres is the same woman who in 2014, when she was part of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, said, and I quote, 
This is the first time in the history of mankind that we are setting ourselves the task of intentionally, within a defined period of time, to change the economic development model that's been reigning for at least 150 years since the Industrial Revolution. Unquote. In other words, we were warned in 2014, change the economic model that's been reigning for at least 150 years since the Industrial Revolution. How dumb are we not to accept the warning? So when someone like the banker Stuart Kirk warns that unsubstantiated, shrill, apocalyptic warnings are always wrong, why be surprised when Figueres says the remarks are abhorrently outrageous? As Darwell rightly argued, quote, 400 years ago, people were burnt at the stake for believing the wrong things about religion. Today, they get fired for questioning the climate change catechism, unquote. But back to Figueres. She demanded HSBC immediately cleanse itself of Kirk's remarks and fire the climate heretic. Kirk's sin against the climate change alarmists took place on Thursday the 19th of May. By Monday the 23rd, HSBC had suspended their senior banker, Stuart Kirk, for saying unsubstantiated, shrill, apocalyptic warnings are always wrong. This is the woke and cancel culture world we have ended with climate change. Remember, it was global warming once, but when the planet didn't warm to suit the devotees of the new religion, they changed the so-called scientific phenomenon to climate change. But they won't brook disagreement, they won't brook argument or debate, and they reach for the punitive response. As Darwell wrote, Kirk's problem is that he's telling the truth, one contrary to the central tenet of environmental, social and governance, governance investing, which holds that it's the duty of finance and business to save the world from a planetary catastrophe, unquote. And so we see, as Matt Canavan and I have talked about regularly on this program, central banks and financial regulators using every regulatory weapon available to them, quote, to suppress investment in fossil fuels and direct capital towards renewables like wind and solar, unquote. Well, Rupert Darwall bells the cap, and we're seeing this here in Australia. Challenge the climate change religion, and you're called a denier, and your views have no currency. But as Matt Canavan said to me last night, we won't be given up. The hoax will eventually be revealed. As the writer Rupert Darwall said, as Stuart Kirk has discovered, that's the HSBC banker, telling the truth is much more dangerous than playing it safe by recycling routine falsehoods about climate risk and existential threats. Distorted, alarmist climate reporting is the norm and getting worse, unquote. The Australian William Kinnanmonth was the former head of the National Climate Centre within the Australian Bureau of Meteorology. He'd know something, wouldn't he? He warned us, quote, climate science is not settled. Four decades of observations highlight that computer models have exaggerated the influence of anthropogenic emissions of carbon dioxide. He said, the Paris Agreement has been negotiated from faulty premises, unquote. Yet the banker Kirk gets suspended for rightly arguing unsubstantiated, shrill, apocalyptic warnings are always wrong, unquote. We must not be intimidated from presenting the alternative view to this climate change religion and highlighting the damage that it will do to individual and national economic well-being. And don't forget, our kids are being brainwashed about all of this in the classroom. Finally, remember, this is about reducing the emissions of carbon dioxide, 
which is 0.04% of the atmosphere. They're taking us for a ride. Well, before we go, I mentioned to you earlier how Boris Johnson is fighting for his political life. The people I keep in contact with in the UK say he's finished. We'll speak tomorrow night to the political editor of the Express Online, David Maddox, for our weekly UK report. When a Prime Minister faces a confidence vote like this, even if they win, which Boris has, the vultures circle and pick away at you for months. The unwritten rule of the 1922 committee, which is a parliamentary group of backbench Conservative MPs, and I'll talk about that tomorrow night, is that once a confidence vote has been conducted, another should not occur for at least another 12 months. And that's designed to restore some sort of stability. Well, there's now chatter that that unwritten rule may not be adhered to, which would be extraordinary. This is because there are two by-elections coming up where the Tories look all but finished in them. Some are mystified as to why MPs didn't hold off until after these two by-elections before submitting letters to the 1922 committee. I've mentioned to you before that if 15% of Conservative MPs submit a letter to the chairman, and that's 54, a confidence vote in the leader is triggered, or a no-confidence vote. So Boris was informed on Sunday, or Sunday afternoon, right before the Queen's Platinum Jubilee pageant, that the vote was coming. He issued every Tory MP with a three-page letter, which included personalised messages in ink, setting out his case for why he shouldn't be removed. Well, 211 voted for Boris, 148 against, a majority of 63. And that's dangerous. For some time now, Bojo has lost his mojo. There's no doubt about that. A bit like Scott Morrison, who can attribute his electoral success in 2019 to the quiet Australians. Boris, in the same year, was elected by those in the Red Wall, way up north, seats that were traditionally Labor, but fell to the Conservative Party, all thanks to Boris being anti-woke and pro-Brexit. He was the man who would bring economic prosperity to the Midlands and be a defender of traditional British values. But ever since that election win, his appeal has faded. Boris has always had good instincts, but he's no stranger to chaos and dysfunction. He's got the smarts, but he can be led astray. When Theresa May faced a confidence vote and won, she was gone six months later. They are predicting the same with Boris Johnson, especially if these two by-elections are lost. Put simply, Boris Johnson is seriously wounded and it is his own doing. And the point is this, when a centre-right party stops being centre-right, they sink. This is what happened at Turnbull and Morrison's Liberal Party. Rank and file members walk away. MPs lose hope and the public becomes disillusioned because the devil they thought they knew ends up being another beast altogether. We'll speak with David Maddox tomorrow night about all of this. But for now, that's it from me. Thank you for watching ADH TV, the last line of defence for common sense viewpoints in Australia. See you tomorrow night. Good night.